Have you ever noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find that they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to people who change what is politically possible. Welcome, I'm Michael Van Beek of the Mackinac Center and your host today for the Overton Window podcast. My guest is Chris Douglas, professor of economics at the University of Michigan Flint and member of the Mackinac Center's Board of Scholars. Chris has broad research interests, including the economics of energy, public finance, and sports. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Our topic today is sports, and in particular, sports stadium subsidies. Uh, the Overton window of this policy of using taxpayer resources to finance the construction or renovation of professional sports stadiums has shifted quite a bit over the last several decades. In fact, I was just reading uh, in the first half of the 20th century, it was essentially unheard of for politicians to subsidize stadiums and to uh, do this in the effort to grow the economy. Now, politicians of every stripe and every place uh, seem interested in this policy and, and practice it. So my first question for you, Chris, is uh, in your opinion, what, what's changed over the years or why has this policy become so common? So I think a couple of things have gone on. First, teams have threatened figured out that they could threaten to move to another city if they don't get their existing city to build them a brand new stadium. So I think what really shook the world was when the Colts moved from Baltimore to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. That happens overnight without any warning. People wake up in the morning and their Mayfall moving trucks literally loaded up outside of the Baltimore Colts stadium going to Indianapolis. So once teams start moving around, policymakers in the host city figure out that we got to keep the teams at home. And if it takes building a brand new stadium to do that, well, that's what we will do. And we see that right now, too, with the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's are threatening to move to Las Vegas because the owner of the Oakland A's thinks that his stadium is, you know, quote unquote, too old. So if he doesn't get a brand new stadium built in Oakland, well, Las Vegas just passed a subsidy to the two to five hundred million dollars to try to lure the A's to Las Vegas. So you see teams threatening to move around cities, for better or worse, of course, worse, are saying, hey, if you come play for us, we'll be build you a brand new stadium. So now in order to prevent that movement, the host city feels like they have to match that offer. And what's the, uh, what's the intended uh, benefit of keeping the team in a particular place? So that's a good question. I think there's a couple of perceived benefits. I think in reality, there is no benefit to having a team in a particular city, but two perceived benefits is first civic pride. You want to be like a major league city. There's some sort of cachet there. Although I think if you surveyed the typical American and said, you know, name all 30 major league baseball cities, how many could they get? Maybe a dozen. The obvious ones, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, if you're in Michigan. Yeah, name the largest cities. Right, name yeah. the largest cities, exactly. <laughs> and then second, there's this desire to de redevelop downtown. So if you ask the question, why were stadiums subsidized in the first half of the 20th century? I think it's because... Downtown major cities were doing well in the first half of the 20th mm. century. You look at Detroit, you have Hudson's. People are working, living, shopping. Downtown Detroit, it's a real happening place. Then you have the flight out of the cities into the suburbs that begins in the 1950s. So there's this desire, get people back downtown again. Well, how can we do it? Put a stadium downtown, get people to come in and go to a game and hopefully shop, eat, do all the things they were doing before people moved to the suburbs. Well, the problem with that is that there's just not a whole lot of professional games in a season. 
You look at the NFL, which is the most heavily subsidized sports league, which is ironic since it's the wealthiest. But there's only eight home NFL games in a season, mm-hmm. which means this, the stadium is closed 90% of the year. You look at Major League Baseball, there's only 61 home games. I think that's right. No, 81 home games. 81, so yeah. 81 home games. So even then, the stadium is closed nearly 90% of the year. So you're not going to be able to generate economic development for 100% of the year for a stadium that's closed 80, 90, almost 100% of the year. And I think sports fans don't necessarily realize that because they have no reason to go to the stadium unless there's a game. So they only see the stadium when it's bustling and the bars surrounding the stadium are bustling as well. But if you go down to, say, Ford Field, Comerica Park right now when there's no game going on, you know, the area is completely deserted, desolate. Yeah, it's like uh, Bastiat's uh, seen and unseen, right? The importance of uh, uh, economists is remembering the unseen, uh, and that's what the stadium is like on non-game days. Uh, and I think if people had that picture in their head when they're thinking about sports stadium subsidies, um, they might think differently about it than the one that they probably have, which is thinking of their experience at the ballpark and how you know there's all this economic activity going on and there's the hustle and bustle of people and merchandise and restaurants and bars and all this stuff. And they think, oh yeah, we want more of that. That's good for downtown. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. And you see this with Little Caesars Arena in 2016. In order to get the state, the state to subsidize more than half of the construction costs, the proponents of Little Caesars Arena said, well, look, if we build Little Caesars Arena, get the Red Wings into Midtown Detroit, the Pistons eventually moved to Midtown Detroit as well. We'd see all this economic development, restaurants, hotels, condos, apartment buildings. Well, none of that has happened. And in fact, Olympia Development has come to the state and said, well, if you want us to actually do this development that we promised, we're going to need an extra billion dollars, roughly, <laughs> of taxpayer subsidies. So the fact that this development's not happening with, without even more subsidies just shows that these sports arenas really don't lead to economic development of the surrounding areas simply because they're closed far more often than what they're open. And uh, the uh, economic literature, the research on this, uh, there's been several scholars who've sort of devoted uh, a lot of interest to this issue. Uh, And it seems like, uh, from what I can see, economists generally um, agree, which they don't often do on many things, but on this issue, they generally agree that these stadium subsidies aren't worth the cost. They don't really pay for themselves. So why hasn't that sort of changed uh, what what we get in policy? You know, today, like you said, we're still Las Vegas is still subsidizing the A's, and we're we're you know, there's lots of examples of this stuff still going on. What? Why hasn't that sort of broken through to politicians? Yeah, what theory I come back to, which I think is an underappreciated theory, is the theory that Mansur Olson in his book, The Logic of Collective Action, mm. proposed that. You would think in a democracy, the majority would get its way just because they have the votes. But that's not actually what happens because the majority, it's a large group. It's very disorganized. It's hard to get an individual group member to enact action to further the group's effort. Whereas if you have a small concentrated group, which sports team owners are, and Mm -hmm. they're very, very wealthy, while a small group could organize, it could make campaign contributions. It can try to shape public policy. And consequently, it's very effective at getting what it wants. It's kind of the the answer to the question, why do we have the military industrial complex? Well, because it's a very small, concentrated, wealthy special interest that's effective at getting what it wants. And sports team owners, I think, are very similar. If you look at the owner of a sports team, given what sports team valuations are right now, you have to be a billionaire to even think about buying a sports team. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go back to like the 1950s, the 1960s, 
kind of my favorite sports team motors, Bill Beck. He's a real innovator. He gives us Bat Day, the exploding scoreboard. But he's like a small time hustler. And you could be that, cobble enough money together to buy, say, the White Sox or the Indians like he did. But you can't do that any longer. So if you're a billionaire and you own a sports team, you're probably the wealthiest person in the state, or at least in the city. So when a mayor or a governor gets your call, they're going to pick up the phone and answer and be really receptive to what you have to say, which I think is what Mansur Olson would predict. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, too, is you think about the small versus large group dichotomy. The voters often get it right in terms of sports stadium subsidies. If you look at, say, Seattle, when the Mariners wanted a brand new stadium to replace the kingdom back in the 1990s, San Francisco voters, same thing, and that these subsidies were put on the ballot as ballot initiatives, and they would routinely lose. A majority of voters would vote no. We're not mm. going to give hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to the richest guy in the state to build a brand new stadium. But what would happen is the state government, the legislature would just go right behind the back of the voters and put forward a, fu a funding package anyway, which again gets back to the small versus large group dichotomy. Yeah, it seems like there's um, there's something to not like from both sides of the political aisle about this, right? I mean, from the left, you would think um, the idea of subsidizing billionaires and you know further right. enriching them would be uh, particularly uh, unattractive. And then uh, on the right side, you know, the idea of sort of uh, interfering in the market here and and subsidizing. Uh, you know, this particular business at the expense of other taxpayers and it uh, it raises uh, the costs of, of taxation and those sorts of things. You know, somebody else is going to have to pay these taxes. Um, but there's some disconnect between um, why that never gets translated into um, uh, at the state houses or in the legislature at the city council level. Um, do you think um, that there is, uh, what, what do you think is particularly appealing to uh, politicians, state, uh, state house members or senators that approve of these things. Well, I mean, what, why do they buy into the argument that these owners must be presenting to them? I would think follow the money. Yeah. I'd be interested to look at campaign finance disclosures to see who state house members are getting campaign contributions from or PAC money from, because these owners are billionaires who I assume make very generous campaign contributions. You can never really understand undercount that, it's mm -hmm. like the military industrial complex. Why do politicians vote for ever escalating defense budgets? Well, because the defense industry is a massive political donor. Lots of House members, Senate members have the defense industry as their largest contributor. So just to run for office costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, even at the state level. So if you have a special interest willing to provide that funding, well, it's very hard to turn that down to try to find funding somewhere else. Another explanation is, Perhaps a less cynical one, although I think sometimes cynical explanations are the correct one, <laughs> right? You don't want to be the governor who lost a, right. the A's, or you want to be the governor who attracted the A's from another state. It's just like a very visible mm -hmm. thing you could hang your head on. Michael Munger, who's on Econ Talk all the time, who I like quite a bit, he calls it the edifice complex. You know, politicians always want some visible edifice to be able to show the general public, hey, this is what I did. You think that you know, paved roads, providing public services would fit that bill, but for whatever reason, politicians don't think that they get credit for paving a road, but they get credit for building a brand new stadium by the taxpayer dime and then bringing a brand new team to the city or the state.
Yeah, and we see the same sort of dynamic with um, the uh, broader issue related to business subsidies altogether, right? So in Michigan, we we just have announced, you know, uh, huge subsidies to uh, automakers uh, who are going to build, you know, large brand new uh, uh, facilities to build electric vehicles. And um, whereas, uh, you know, all the other business activity that happens um, is, you know, largely sort of just disregarded and uh, you know we don't pay much attention to that instead we focus on the big shiny project right yeah you look at like a battery factory where the state might be dumping a hundred million dollars to subsidize a battery factory that will employ maybe five or ten thousand people well that's a rounding error in terms of total employment in the state where state of michigan there's probably three four million people working so five hundred thousand or five thousand yeah, new right. jobs that's that's nothing more jobs that are created in a given month in every other industry. But having a brand new factory in a green field, 5,000 people showing up to make batteries, well, that makes for a nice press conference and a press release for the governor. Yeah, and um, similarly, the, uh, the economic impact of sports stadiums and sports in general is um, considered to be, by most people in their imagination, much larger than what it actually is. Can you talk a little bit about that, put that into perspective? Right. So there's the sports page for people who still read newspapers. There's ESPN, tons of websites, tons of books, all written about sports. So people must think that sports is just a massive component of the economy. And that's not the case. If you look at like 1994, when the World Series was canceled, Major League Baseball was about the size of the U.S. envelope industry, about a $2 billion industry. Is about a third of the size of the cardboard box industry. It's grown a little bit now, but you're talking to maybe an industry that's maybe three, four, five billion dollars in aggregate, which means if you drill down to the local level, like if you look at Metro Detroit, the four professional sports teams in Metro Detroit is less than 1% of the Metro Detroit economy. Metro Detroit economy is a $250 billion economy. So you just add up all the revenue generated by the Red Wings, the Tigers, the Pistons, and the Lions. It doesn't come anywhere close to to even being 1% of that. It's just that those are such visible entities, people must think that it's just a really big deal and it's not. Which is why you see cities like Seattle that have lost professional teams when the Supersonics moved to Oklahoma. You saw the Brooklyn Dodgers, of course, move in the 1950s to Los Angeles. It's not like those cities disappeared. Mm -hmm. In fact, those cities, as far as I can tell, are stronger than ever economically, although COVID, of course, you know, throws a wrench into that. Mm -hmm. I would be interested to see maybe Gallup or a survey organization go survey people at Seattle and say, you know, what do you think about the supersonics? I, I bet most people say, huh? <laughs> Who are you talking about? It's, it's pretty funny how quickly these teams are forgotten about when they move because they just have such a small footprint in terms of the state's economy, even if sports in general loom large and the psyche of sports fans. Yeah, and um, so one of the key uh, tactics that's used um, and maybe maybe the one that uh, voters buy into the most is the um, the threat to move by the sports team. Um, so if you know it's basically holding uh, taxpayers and, and uh, policymakers hostage and saying you know if you don't give us what we want uh, we're out of here right. and we're taking all of our goodies with us. Um, why is that not a legitimate threat really? Uh, yeah, just because sports are too small economically yeah. to matter for a city. You're talking less than 1% of a city's economy tied to a particular sports team. So no mayor really wants to be the the mayor that lost, say, the A's or the Colts or the Browns. 
But in terms of a mayor actually calling a sports team bluff and saying, you're threatening to move, go ahead and move, the city's economy will be completely unaffected. You know, maybe if there's a bar right next to the city or the stadium in that city, well, maybe that bar loses the business on game day. But that's really the exception. Since these sports teams are such a small component of the city's economy, letting a team move will have absolutely no economic impact. You look at the revenue generated by a sports team, it primarily goes to the sports team owner. Sports team owners get more than half of all sports mm. generated revenue. You know, the rest basically goes to the players. And then what's left over goes to like part-time workers, food service workers, janitors. But in fact, the city might be better off if it lets the sports team go because there's a lot of other subsidies cities provide teams, like police protection on game day. Lots of cities provide water and sewer subsidies. So if a team goes, mm. those subsidies don't need to be provided any longer. And whatever spending consumers were doing at the stadium will just go to other entertainment venues instead. It's not like consumers are going to be like, well, since the Tigers moved, we're not going to do anything on a Saturday afternoon any longer. We'll go play golf. We'll go bowling. We'll go to an amusement park. So other businesses will be recipients of that spending. So it really, in effect, it's probably a wash for the city. Maybe a little bit better than a wash since the city's not subsidizing the bowling alley like the city's subsidizing the sports team. And one subsidy that we should talk about, too, is lots of sports stadiums, sports arenas are owned by either the city directly or a nonprofit mm. like a downtown development authority, right. which is who owns the Little Susie's Arena. So why do that? Why doesn't the sports team just own the stadium after the, the government builds it? Well, because if the sports team owns the stadium, well, they have to pay property taxes on it. Well, if the DDA owns, say, Little Caesars Arena, well, the DDA doesn't pay property taxes. It's, it's that's the downtown development authority. Right, correct. Yeah, yeah. So that's another subsidy that cities give sports teams, that their venue is property tax-free. Well, the bowling alley, the golf course, the amusement park, they all pay property taxes. Mm. So in fact, the city and the state would be better off if consumers spent their entertainment dollars at those venues rather than at the sports arena. It would generate more tax revenue that right. could be used for public services. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, right. You know, roads, schools, water and sewer. And uh, the, the threat to move is really um, not as large of a threat as what it's often made out to be. Isn't that right? Because of uh, the, the options that the owners actually have for moving. Yeah, uh, that's really not as enticing of a proposition as what they make it out to be. Right. So if you're an NFL owner, you have a legitimate threat to move just the way that TV revenue works in the NFL. There's just one TV contract. Every team gets an equal slice of that TV contract. So if you own the Green Bay Packers, your TV money is exactly the same as if you own, say, the New York Jets. So if you're the Jets, or we could go back to the Los Angeles Rams in 1994, you could legitimately threaten to move to St. Louis, a city that's much smaller than Los Angeles, because your TV revenue is completely unaffected. And you get a brand new arena in the process paid for by St. Louis taxpayers. But if you look at the other three professional leagues, Major League Baseball, National Basketball Association, National Hockey League, TV revenue doesn't work like that. They do have a national TV contract, but it's much smaller, which means teams are responsible for selling games on a local TV contract. And the value of that local TV contract is dependent on the size of the market. We were talking before this podcast about why are the Knicks the most valuable basketball franchise, despite the fact that they haven't won a championship since 1973. Well, it's because they play in Manhattan. It's by far the largest media market in the United States. So they can sell their games on a local TV contract that's worth a lot more than, say, what the Minnesota Timberwolves could sell their games on. So 
unless you're a small market team in one of those three leagues, you can't legitimately threaten to move because you'll be moving to a much smaller market compared to the one that you're leaving, which is why when we look at the Oakland A's right now, yeah, they can threaten to move because they're playing in Oakland, a city of about half a million. They're competing with the San Francisco Giants just across the bay. So they're really moving from one small market to another small market. But you would never see the Dodgers move in Major League Baseball. You would never see, say, the Yankees move just because they would be losing so much money from the local TV contract, plus ticket sales, plus merchandise sales, plus parking, plus all the other revenue that's really tied to market size. Yeah. And uh, one of the other one of the other things that I find interesting about this issue is that the uh, you know this policy inside the Overton window is, is it's very specific because it's really only professional sports teams in the United States right. that get this kind of special treatment. I think of uh, you know large college basketball and football programs like they they draw tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to their stadiums multiple times a year. They must have the same kind of positive externalities that are generated that, you know, a politician would say, hey, we should encourage more, subsidize this kind of activity to grow the economy. But that almost never gets done. Um, in Europe, all of the soccer sports, all the soccer stadiums are almost all privately owned and privately funded. This is not a thing that they do in Europe. Um, so I wonder if you have thoughts on, you know, how, how did this, this little sliver of subsidy get uh, become popular uh, just in this one little segment. I mean, what's what's the difference there? I think it's just the threat to move that yeah. we've been talking about. So if you're the president of, say, the University of Michigan, you can't threaten to move to, say, Florida unless the state legislature builds you a brand new stadium. Right. So that's why college college football teams tend to play in older stadiums that are renovated. Like the big house has been renovated. Yeah. Michigan State's football stadium has been renovated. I think all the Big Ten stadiums have been renovated in one form or another just because they can't threaten to move anywhere. Where and it might be too expensive. You know, it might not make a lot of sense to build a brand new stadium, so even if it is also in Ann Arbor or, or you know, wherever, uh, East Lansing. But um, so instead they do maybe the more efficient and economically efficient thing and renovate the stadium. Right. So you look at sports team owners, the professional leagues, they always try to claim, well, my stadium's falling down. Yeah. Right. That's what the Tigers claimed when they had to move out of Tiger Stadium. The Yankees claimed that when they moved out of the house that Ruth built, oh, it's, it's falling apart. Well... First of all, if it's falling apart, that's your fault for not maintaining it, right? right? My house is falling apart. I can't go to my city council and say, hey, build me a brand new house. Mine's falling apart. They'll say, well, why didn't you take care of it? Well, probably in reality, these stadiums aren't falling apart. It's funny how these sports team owners who claim that their stadium is falling apart never let in independent structural engineers and architects to do a mm. nonpartisan, unbiased evaluation in terms of the bones of the structure. But lots of these stadiums are maybe 25 30 years old. The Braves recently moved out of the stadium that I think was built in the mid-1990s. So these things are structurally obsolete. They're economically obsolete because they don't perhaps have premium seating, other highly profitable amenities that brand new stadiums would have. So rather than the sports team owner undertaking renovations to build those amenities himself, he threatens to move and then extracts those subsidies from state and local taxpayers to build those amenities for him, either in a brand new stadium or perhaps a heavily renovated stadium, although I don't really think you see heavily renovated stadiums in the professional sports leagues. Yeah. Whereas, like I said, University of Michigan, where are you going to threaten to move to? If you want club seats, if you want luxury boxes, which the big house has right now, got to raise the money to build, build, the, build the addition, which is what the University of Michigan did. 
Uh, Michigan has kind of an interesting uh, history with this particular policy issue. It seems like uh, maybe uh, here policymakers didn't quite get in on the act as quickly as other um, other states or other cities because uh, we had some entire for a while Michigan was home to some of the only examples of privately funded stadiums. I know that um, uh, Palace right was uh, privately funded, and I think the there's a couple minor league ballparks. Uh, the one in Midland here too is entirely privately funded. Um, uh, can, can you tell a little bit about, about those, like the palace, um, what, what went on there, how, cause that was built in the, what, in the 80, late eighties? Yeah. 89, okay. I think, so when yeah. it opened up. Yeah. So I think the story of the palace is that the owner of the Detroit Pistons at the time, William Davidson, he had guardian glass at Auburn Hills. So he wanted the palace to be right next to his facility. Mm. It's probably going to be pretty hard to extract stadium subsidies to build a, a brand new arena right in Auburn Hills on a greenfield outside of the interstate. But he also wanted to control how the palace looked, what was in the palace. So he's a real innovator in the sense that he was the first person to really load up the palace full of luxury suites, mm. club seats. He's really ahead of the curve in terms of premium seating and sports arenas. So because he did that, he was able to build it privately and then turn a big profit while the Palace was open, both for Pistons games. The Pistons, of course, were really good when they were playing in the Palace, right. both during the Bad Boys era and then the second Bad Boys era, plus all the concerts that came through the Palace. So I think with creativity, you can subsidize or you can build a brand new stadium or arena without subsidies and turn a profit, which is what sports team owners did until uh, mid-20th century. Yeah, now... Um... 30, 30 years later, a little more, um, the palace is no longer being used uh, for professional basketball. Um, and uh, instead, taxpayers are subsidizing the stadium where, where that team is playing. Right. It's hard to make a case that state taxpayers should subsidize the movement of a team mm -hmm. from one city in the state yeah. to another city in the state. So why should state taxpayers open up their pocketbook to leave a vacant lot in Auburn Hills so the Pistons can move to downtown Detroit. There's just absolutely no rationale for why state taxpayers as a whole are better off because of that move. Same with the, when, when the Lions moved from the Silver Dome down to Ford Field in, in the year 2000. State taxpayers paid, I believe, about a third of the construction cost, maybe a little bit more of Ford Field. How are state taxpayers better off moving the Pistons from Pontiac down to downtown Detroit and leaving an empty shell of a lot where the Silver Dome used to stand. I mean, there's just no rationale for why state taxpayers should prefer a team in one city versus another city in that state. Um, I'm wondering uh, kind of more on a personal level um, from you or your uh, professional interests, at least, uh, how did you get interested in this in this issue? I mean, of all the different things that you can study in economics and even the different things you can study in sports economics, what, what drew you to this? Yeah, that's a good question. I've always been a sports fan. Growing up, I was a big Pistons fan in the 80s when I was in fifth and sixth grade watching them win championships. I can vaguely remember the Tigers winning in 1984. Mm -hmm. I kind of vaguely remember them getting knocked out of the American League championship against the Blue Jays, I believe, in 86. 87? 80, was it 87? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. <laughs> I've always been a sports fan, and I work at the University of Michigan Flint where we have summer, spring summer classes during the May to August months. And we have elective classes that our majors and minors could take, as well as other students who are interested. So I thought sports economics would be an interesting elective class to offer in the summer. Kind of a fun, fun thing to, 
talk about in the summer. Plus, sports economics runs the gamut of all economic issues, mm. macroeconomics, microeconomics, labor economics, public finance. So it's a good way to get students interested in economics as a whole. So once I dug into that field, I got interested in stadium subsidies when I learned that the typical NFL stadium is about 86% paid for by taxpayers. Sub-stadiums, like where the Bengals play, Paul Brown Stadium, it's subsidized to the tune of 120% of the stadium's construction costs by taxpayers <laughs> because taxpayers paid for the entire stadium plus a bunch of other infrastructure around the stadium. So I thought, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. That when you think about the economy as a whole, you really can't think of another industry that's so heavily subsidized by the government. Sure, the battery industry is an exception, but think about like restaurants, bars, office buildings, the owner of those businesses pay for the construction costs, pay for that physical capital. Well, why is it different in sports? So then there's this issue of movement, this issue of do sports stadiums really lead to economic development? It's just a real, real interesting rabbit hole to go down. To go down. And since everyone's been to a sports stadium, mm -hmm. it's just something that's interesting to talk about because it's so far outside of, like you talked about, the Overton window. Right. Because I don't think there's a lot of people in Michigan who would say, well, the Tigers really still belong in Tiger, Tiger Stadium. Having them move to Comerica Park back in the year 2000, that was a mistake. Or the Lions really do belong in the Silverdome. Having them move to Ford Field in the year 2000, that was really a mistake as a real waste of taxpayer dollars. Yeah, right. Uh, where do you see this issue going uh, in the future? Um, do you think the Overton window might might shift uh, in, one, in one direction or the other? Or, or do you, we'll continue on the same kind of uh, uh, track that we're on now? Yeah, I, I go through waves of, of optimism and pessimism. <laughs> so my wave of optimism was that it seems like people have wised up to the fact that the Olympics are a waste of money. Mm, and that yeah. Olympics are like sports David subsidies on steroids where you have a bidding process and the bidding process really entails which cities willing to blow the most amount of money to, the host, to host the Olympics. I think everyone realizes that it's really stupid to build facilities that are mm -hmm. used for two weeks and then sit empty afterwards. Like the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing for the 2008 Summer Olympics is completely empty. So if you look at more recent rounds of Olympic bidding, no one's really bidding to host the Olympics. So I thought, well, maybe that mentality would trickle mm -hmm. down to sports stadiums. So my wave of pessimism comes in from the fact that, well, these subsidies seem larger than ever. When we talk about subsidies, maybe 20 years ago, we're talking in the tens or the low hundreds of billion, millions of dollars. Now we're talking about in the hundreds of millions of dollars or the billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. If you look at the ACE subsidy to move to Las Vegas, that's half a billion dollars. If you look at, uh, I'm blanking on exactly what the stadium was, but you can find stadiums out there that are subsidized to the tune of over a billion dollars. So it seems like people are slow to kind of wake up to the fact that this is a real waste of money. So it doesn't seem like that mentality that caught on with the Olympics has really trickled down to the professional sports. At some point, hopefully, people will wake up to say, you know, we really didn't get our money's worth paying half a billion dollars to get the A's to move to Las Vegas. We didn't get our money's worth to pay, say, $200 million, which is roughly what I think Michigan taxpayers paid, to move the Lions from the Silver Dome down to Ford Field. But until that happens, I think these subsidies aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for our podcast uh, today on the Overton Window podcast. I want to thank Chris for being our guest and uh, discussing sports stadium subsidies with us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris.